Good morning. My name is not Ed Moore. My name is Jackson Hewer. I am not the head pastor and elder at North Shore Baptist Church. I am the youth and children's director, full-time staff here at North Shore Baptist Church, and I will not be preaching for a very, 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 very long time. Uh, I'll be preaching for like a medium length of time. If you're not there already, please open your copy of your Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians. Lord willing, today we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. This verse has been a tremendous blessing to me personally, especially since the time that I have been the youth and children's director here at North Shore, and so my prayer for all of you this morning is that would be a tremendous blessing to you if it has not been already. It would be a tremendous blessing to you going forward as you continue to walk with the Lord. So again, please, if you're not there already, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. And what I'd like to do is for everyone to stand as I read that verse for us this morning. So please stand and follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so very thankful and joyful that week after week you allow us to gather here. But I thank you for this building that you have so richly provided for us so that we can freely gather and open your word. Lord, we thank you for the songs that we are able to sing unto you. We thank you for those who are helping out with the children and teaching them and instructing them in your word. Lord, we pray now for the preaching of your word, that our eyes would be fixed on you and you alone that you would empower me with your spirit, that they would not be my words, but your words. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here convicted and more in love with you and who you are and what you have done. Most importantly, that we'd never forget the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him, though we did not deserve it. We give you all praise and glory and honor. We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, something that maybe few or many of you may be prone to think of when you read this verse is that this is kind of a verse strictly for pastors and elders and youth pastors and pastoral assistants and people who specifically are in ministry and work for the church. But of course, that is not the case. I think this is a verse for every single believer in the room right now, whether you are a lawyer or a doctor, a firefighter, a a teacher, a student, a mother, a husband, whatever the case, if you are a child of God, right? this verse applies to you in something that I think should be constantly on your mind. So please keep that in mind as we go through and study this text today. For those taking notes, we will have a pretty simple four-point outline, a four-point outline. Each point will start with the letter C. Four-point outline, starting with the letter C, and each point will be associated with this verse, a small section of this one verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 
58. So again, we will have four points. The four points are these. Point number one, context. When it says, therefore, my beloved brothers, we will have point number two, constant, be steadfast, immovable. We'll have point number three, committed, right? always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then we will finish with point number four, a little two for one, comfort and Christ, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So of course, let's start with point number one, context. Point number one, context. Context is king. First Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers. Therefore, my beloved brothers. And in order to understand this verse, as it closes out the chapter, we need to know that the author Paul, right, we need to know what he was saying leading up to it, right? That is why he uses the word Therefore, it's important to know what happened prior, right? What, what was mentioned prior sort of propels and drives what he's about to say in this verse. So what is Paul talking about in this chapter leading up to verse 58? Well, if you go through and read it, right, Paul is talking about the resurrection. He is communi- communicating to the Corinthians that those who are saved, the Corinthians, that those who are true believers will indeed be raised from the dead. After death, Christians will be resurrected. They will be raised to new life in the Lord, right? They will put on the imperishable, as he puts it in verse 53, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. They will be raised and in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. That's what Paul is mentioning in chapter 15. And he is saying this because some of the Corinthians in that time did not believe in that resurrection of the saints. They would believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They would not deny that. But Paul's reasoning and Paul's argument in this chapter is that, well, if you deny the resurrection of the saints, then you are essentially in one way denying Christ's resurrection as well. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 13, Paul writes, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. But of course, we know that this is not the case, and praise God for that, right? Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul then writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. This is true, and since Christ has been raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead to live forevermore. Christ came in human form. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for the sins of those who would believe in him, and then he was indeed raised from the dead and lives forevermore and reigns as king. And that resurrection was sort of like the stamp of approval by God the Father, the stamp of approval. And so, keep those thoughts in the back of your head, and we will get into that a little bit more later on in our final point. But for the context of this verse, verse 58, the context is that Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. He's arguing that Christ indeed rose from the dead, which they do not deny. And therefore, since Christ rose, so will those who believe. And so after establishing that truth and arguing that and reasoning for that, he can now put the ink to the paper and write verse 58, our text for this morning. And he can start by saying, therefore... Because of everything that I just said, therefore, my beloved brothers, based upon everything that I mentioned, listen now to my words and what I am to say. 
Again, Paul is addressing those at the church in Corinth, those who are saved. That's why he calls them my beloved brothers, his brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones whom he has a special and deep love and affection for. We are called to show the love of Christ to everyone, but we also have an an even deeper and more special love for those who are in Christ, our brothers and sisters. Paul writes in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, and we do, let us do good to everyone, let us love others, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is why Paul can and should use the word beloved. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, right? The people near and dear to him as they should be since they are indeed of the household of faith. These are the people he has spent writing letters to, these 15 chapters to already, the church that he so desperately wants to see grow and flourish in the Lord. He's got that special love for God's people as should all of us who are saved. Paul wants them growing in holiness, and in this specific verse, he used the context of the resurrection in order to make his point, in order to get his point across, which we will get into now. So that was a a quick little background of point number one, context. Therefore, my beloved brothers, Christ was raised from the dead, and that means you will be too. And since we have established those wonderful biblical truths, here is what should flow out of that. And so we get to point number two. Point number one, context, therefore my beloved brothers. Now, point number two, constant. Point number two, constant. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Because of everything that I have mentioned Because I love you and I want to see you flourish in the Lord, be steadfast, immovable. The first word in that little section is be. Be steadfast. Be immovable. This is a command to the Corinthians. This is a command to the believers. And this command's foundation, of course, is from that context that we just talked about in point number one. Because of that resurrection, God's stamp of approval of all that Jesus had done and accomplished known as the good news of the gospel, by which we are saved, this should cause believers to be steadfast, to be immovable. I read somewhere as I was studying for this this week, and I was preparing for this sermon, a quote that says, biblical truth was never meant just for information, but for transformation. Biblical truth was never meant just for information, but for transformation. And we should never read such rich spiritual truth in his word just for the sake of knowing it and then doing nothing with it and not applying it to our lives, right? It should not, it should be able to transform our lives and dictate the way that we live. Right? Our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And so because Paul gives them a clear explanation of all that he mentions in chapter 15 and about the resurrection, that rich, that rich truth should cause them to be transformed and to live a certain way. And what is that way? What is that way? Well, he says it's to be steadfast. It's to be immovable. 
Those things go hand in hand, right? To be solid and grounded, to be firm and constant, to not be easily moved and swayed one way to another, right? To be stationed in place, steadfast, immovable. Mets fans don't know anything about this. They start out in first place in the beginning of the season, all's good, and then they sway down into the standings and, and the Phillies go t- above them and the Braves go above them. They're not steadfast and immovable. They fall out of the standing as the year go along. That is, that is not the case for Mets fans. Right? But Paul says that shouldn't be the case for believers. It shouldn't be true for God's people when it comes to key biblical truths such as the resurrection. Right? And certain things in the Bible and in Christianity that shouldn't be and can't be disagreed upon, right? Key components of the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus is fully God. That Jesus is also fully man. That he lived a perfect life, that he never sinned, and that he alone can offer salvation, right? That, that works do not and cannot save us. And so because of that, Christ died on the cross for our sins. And we believe that he indeed was raised from the dead on the third day and lives forevermore. Things like this cannot be disputed amongst believers. And so it is things like this that I have just mentioned that we must be steadfast in our thinking on and in our stance towards. It is things like this that we must be immovable in our thinking of. Paul wouldn't want the Corinthians, he wouldn't want us to be swayed in our thinking of the resurrection and the key components of the wonderful truth of the gospel. He wouldn't want us swaying to think that works can lead us to salvation, that there's a, a different way than from faith in Christ. He wouldn't want us to think that way. God would not want us to think that way. So we should be grounded firm in these things so that when we come into contact with deceivers and false teachers and people who don't have the same beliefs as us and are against us, that we are not swayed easily by their words and their thinking and their preaching. Someone who maybe comes along and very clearly believes that we are able to work our way to heaven or that Jesus was merely man but not God. We cannot be like a sail in a sailboat that gets blown whichever way the worldly wind blows. We cannot say to ourselves, I feel just like a sailboat, sailboat Ben Rector 2013. No, we need to be grounded and directed in and by the Lord and in his laws. Paul says something similar to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul writes, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Right? We cannot be tossed to and fro by the waves. We cannot be carried about by every wind of doctrine that comes our way. We must be mature and grounded and firm and immovable and growing in our understanding of God and his biblical truths and not easily tossed around like a child in the waves. And so by maybe a way of application, let me ask all of you, and I also speak to myself, especially as I was preparing for this, right? Are you steadfast and immovable? Because Paul says, be steadfast, immovable. The Lord says, be steadfast and immovable. Are you steadfast and immovable? Are you grounded firmly in the Lord and his truth in his word? Are you knowledgeable about what the Lord says in his word? Are you able to discern what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what is from the Lord and what is from man? 
what is true and what is false. I think that the times in which we are maybe most prone to not be steadfast and immovable, of course, is when trials and hardships arise, right? When, when trials arise, there's a great sense of temptation and sin, and sin makes us foolish. So we often, in those times, lose focus of what God has clearly said and taught us, like things that we know to be true, that we have taught to others. We just kind of lose sight of it in that moment. And so especially in those times of trials and hardships, we must stand firm through the fiercest storms, continuing on in faithfulness and trusting in our Lord and Savior rather than trusting in someone or something else. And so when you're nervous about what future school to go to or if you should move away or stay or what career path you want to go on, right? are you steadfast and immovable knowing what God says in his word and what is true of him? Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That is what he says in his word. Of course, God does not clearly state out like what specific school you should go to in his word. He doesn't do that. But he does tell you and give you instruction to lean on him, to focus on being faithful to him wherever you do end up. And from that will come guidance and direction and clarity. But again, too often during these times, we are not steadfast and we look to worldly guidance. We think about our own sinful and selfish heart and desires and what our heart thinks is best. We look to those who maybe are not Christians and we look to those who will just give us the right, the answer that we want. We go upon, we go based upon a gut feeling. And we go extremely based upon temporal pleasures of this world. We so quickly forget about his word. We so quickly forget to go to him in prayer and to remember and be reminded of his truth. So, of course, my prayer for all of us this morning is that we would indeed remain steadfast, immovable, that we would be grounded in who God is, what he has said, what he has commanded of us, and what he has done. Now you see, the sole reason that Paul can say this, the sole reason why we can be firm and grounded is not ultimately because of us. It's not because we are so special in and of our own selves. No, it's, it's because of the Lord. It's because of the Lord. It's because of God the Father. It's because of Jesus Christ, right? God is never changing. He is steadfast and immovable. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We can be steadfast in him because he is steadfast. He never changes. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Christ, as the song puts it, which we sang earlier, he is our sure and steady anchor. Allow me to read verse 3 of what we sang prior. Verse 3 of that song says, Christ, the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, 
Deeper still then goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. He is the anchor that is firm, and therefore we can hold firm in him. Right? While the tempest rages on through the times of trial, and when we are quick to not trust in him, we are indeed supposed to look and rest and find solace in him. We are supposed to be steadfast and immovable, and we are only able to do that. We are only able to fulfill this command because Christ, who is steadfast and immovable, who is our sure and steady anchor, and who died for us and rose again. The devil and the world will come and attack you from every which way, so we must be ready and rooted in Christ, in the Lord. We must be steadfast, immovable. And of course, that can be only done through the work of the Lord in our lives. But indeed, it is possible for us to follow this command to be steadfast and movable. So let us do that. So that was point number two, constant. We looked at point number one, the context. Therefore, my beloved brothers, Paul, his argument leading up to this verse. And then... We just looked at point number two, constant. Therefore, my beloved brothers, what? Be steadfast, immovable. And so that brings us to point number three. Point number three, committed. Point number three, committed. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, in the work of the Lord, always abounding in the work of the Lord. First, let's look at that very first word, always. This word always comes from the Greek word pantote. I apologize if I butchered that pronunciation. Now, we, of course, should not take this word always quite literally, meaning every single second without pause or ending or stop. Right, just like in 1 Thessalonians, when Paul is giving his final instructions, he says in chapter 5, verse 16, rejoice always. That always there is the same word that we get here in 1 Corinthians. Right, that does not mean that physically we need to be smiling at all times, without, every second, without fail. Right? You're not allowed to put your head on the pillow and close your eyes and, and be able to sleep because you won't be actively rejoicing during that time. It's, it's not like we must be rejoicing while we're getting a root canal in the dentist's office. Right? No. The always here means that of a general, continual, committed way of living and practice in one's life. A way of living and practice in one's life, right? Rejoice always. Your overall life should be saturated with joy, right? Something that will be showing up in your life that people will be able to point out and to recognize and to see. And same thing here with always abounding in the work of the Lord. Doesn't mean that every single second you never stop reading your Bible or you're never not in prayer, that you're always setting up for a Wednesday night meal or that you're always with another believer or that you're constantly evangelizing 24-7. But it should be a continual reoccurring service in your life as a Christian, right? It shouldn't be rare that you're reading the Bible. It shouldn't be rare that you go to the Lord in prayer. It shouldn't be rare that you seek to evangelize and so you go out and do so. It shouldn't be rare that you're helping with some sort of ministry 
in your local church. Those things shouldn't be rare, always abounding, a constant, continual practice. Playing baseball in college was a fun experience for me in my life. I was a pitcher. We had a lot of guys on the team who would hit and play the field. And so from the hitters, you would quickly find out who were the ones that worked the hardest and put in the most effort and wanted to improve. And for those who are baseball fans, one of the good ways for hitters to get better and to practice is for them to go to the batting cages, taking swing after swing after swing after swing, working and improving on technique. And so there were some guys that I would say on the team were always in the batting cages. Now Again, I use the word always. Does that mean that they never left the batting cages? No, of course not. I would see them in the dining hall eating. I would see them at our school's basketball game. I would see them in their dorm rooms. I would see them at Chick-fil-A. They would go home and visit, and visit for the weekend. Right? But when I say always, it does mean that they made a regular practice of being in the batting cages. They would be in there daily. They would be in there for good chunks of time. They desired to be in there. They wanted to be in there and to improve. It was not shocking to me if I were to go up to them and to ask them, what did you do today? And if, as they explained their daily routine, it would not be shocking that if at some point in the day they said, oh, and I went to go hit in the batting cages to work on some things. And so, of course, I hope that you see my point in all of this. Right, as a way of application here in this point, can the always be said of you when it comes to service in the Lord and fellowship in him and with his people? Or is it rare to find you serving in some way, shape, or form when it comes to the Lord and to his ministries in the church? Is it rare for you to evangelize? Is it rare for you to be in God's word? Is it rare for you to be in prayer? Right, does, does your day just consist of waking up, taking off for school or for work, coming home, eating dinner, talking with family and friends and your kids, talking about how much you hate the assignments and homeworks that you're giving or how terrible and mean your boss is, and then just kind of just go to bed, and that's kind of your routine, that's your day, nothing more, nothing less. Of course, I'm not saying that you can't talk about school and work and have dinner and watch a movie. definitely want you to do those things. Right, and I don't want you to think that I'm saying that that somehow plays into your salvation. Of course, salvation is not through works. It's not through serving the church. You don't earn your place and favor with God by serving in the church or evangelizing to a certain amount of people per day. Paul's clear in the book of Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified, N-O-T, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is through faith in Jesus and the work that he did, not in our works. But we do know in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 17, it says faith without works is dead. That if you are a true born-again believer, someone who has indeed been saved by faith through in Jesus, there will be fruit, there will be works that come as a result of that. Someone who is genuinely saved has the spirit in them and will indeed desire and want to work unto the Lord. And you know that they will aim to work always, as we've been talking about. They will be desirous to always abound in the work of the Lord. It will be a constant practice in their life, right? And God will give them the power and the ability and the desire to carry out that work that he has set out for them. Those things such as Matthew 28, 19, to make disciples of every nation. As I said before in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, to pray without ceasing, 
Hebrews 10, 25, to fellowship and gather with the saints. And in the verse prior in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, to build one another in the Lord through love and good works. And the list goes on and on and on. Right? Can the always be said of you? Is your service to the Lord a continual thing and practice in your life that you desire and love to do for his glory and not for self? Or are you just here on a Sunday morning because you kind of feel obligated to, and that's kind of the extent of things? You come in and you leave. And so brothers and sisters, it must be a constant ongoing practice in the Lord, not out of obligation, but because of the desire that the Lord gives us to work unto him, to, to please him and to glorify him. So going back to our verse, after the word always, we get the word abounding, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That word abounding conveys the sense of overflowing, right? Like a cup that cannot contain all of the water that is in it because there's way too much. There is an abundance of it. And I think this word is pretty important for our verse this morning. And we are commanded by Paul and ultimately by the Lord to carry out good works in him because we are indeed his children. And we are told that it should be abundant, that we should be abounding in it. And so the opposite of that would be just barely enough. Right? The opposite is just enough to be acceptable and just enough to get by. Our service and our work and our love for the Lord should not be treated like a high school assignment. As long as I just get that 65, that's, that's fine by me. It's still a passing grade. I won't fail the class. That's just, that's my goal. We should not treat our service to the Lord like that. That should not be the mindset of a believer. There's no max limit when it comes to serving. I'm not saying that you should overextend yourself and exhaust yourself and, and, and run yourself dry and serve in every single possible way at all times. It's not what I'm saying. But there should be that desire and seeking to do good works and to serve the Lord, especially in the local church that he has put you in. And what should propel this desire to serve the Lord? To always be abounding in the work of the Lord? Well, again, it's what Paul mentioned in his context, Jesus and his wonderful gospel and his wonderful resurrection. Listen to this wonderful quote by John Piper. He says, and I quote, abound in means overflow with. Fill your days with things that count for Christ. Pray and dream and plan and then work, work, work while it is day. This happens, Paul says, because you have heard and believed. You have read and memorized and meditated on and believed deep in your soul that death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory because of Christ. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, and work for Christ and his kingdom. End quote. We have a great victory through Christ who defeated death and sin through the resurrection. And we therefore now have victory over death and sin, that glorious truth should propel us to work for the Lord, knowing that our salvation has already been purchased and our future is sure that we will rise again and be with him forevermore to the praise of his glory. That it should propel us as we read this verse. So we looked at those first two words, always abounding. 
But of course, let us not gloss over or, or forget the fact that it does say in the work of the Lord, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We are not called or commanded to be always abounding in watching TV shows or in friendships or sporting events or musical instruments or going on traveling trips. No, we are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because in the end, that is what will last. That is what will and already does matter the most. That's what should matter to you the most, the work of the Lord and his kingdom. I think many of you have maybe heard the lines in a poem by a man named C.T. Studd called Only One Life. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. This world is not our home. We are just passing through and the things of this world are very temporary. They will not last. They are not what's important. The trophies will rust. The friendships will end. The good looks will fade. The car will break down. The house will be demolished. But God is forever and he reigns forever, and Christ is king forevermore. His kingdom will never end. The work of the Lord is meaningful. Letting your neighbor know about Jesus is important. Being a crew leader for VBS and the fruit from that is a tremendous blessing and a great value in the eyes of the Lord. Bringing an elderly saint in the church a meal and the love of Christ that they feel from that is a blessing. So have your minds on those things. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Have your mind on spiritual things. Have your mind on what will last and what has eternal value and eternal impact. Now, of course, I'm not saying that we cannot enjoy the earthly temporal blessings that God has given us, such as sports and playing music and things like that. You can, but let that not be what we get caught up in. Let that not be what we get wrapped up in. Let that not be our main focus. Our main focus is the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord and what he wants us to do. And so I pray that that be our aim as we leave this building this morning. That our eyes will be fixed on Jesus. So that was point number three, committed. We had point number one, context. Therefore, my beloved brothers... We had point number two, constant. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. And then we just finished point number three, committed. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And finally, we come now to point number four, a little two for one, comfort and Christ. Point number four, comfort and Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I think many of you can relate and agree on the fact that it is great comfort in having a certain friend, certain person, a certain best friend who you can count on and trust to be there and always have your back. You know that they will give you effort 100% of the time. You know that they will show up when you need them to be there, wherever you need them to be. Obviously, they are still human. It's not a total 100% certainty and confidence on them every single time, but you can get pretty close with your confidence in them. Well, imagine how much more comfort this verse should bring to you because this is said with absolute certainty. You can know that what you are doing is not in vain, that what you are doing is not pointless, that what you are doing will not return void. There is a great peace and comfort in that, knowing that as you work unto him. You are not striving 
in vain. We have VBS each year for a week in July. We had ours two weeks ago, July 11th through the 15th. A wonderful time. Barn in the USA transformed this place into a barn. It was wonderful, spectacular. Everyone did a wonderful job, especially with the decorations. Sunday night before the first day of VBS each year takes many hours and many hands to get it decorated and ready to go. It's a lot of hard work, but it's 100% worth it. But what if at the start of the night, I told everyone that we will work super, super hard to get this place set up. It'll take like four plus hours. Some of us will be here till midnight. And then as soon as the final step is is completed, when we get done tonight, I tell them this before we even start, I will personally go around and undo everything. I'm just going to destroy all of it as soon as we're done. So work really, really hard for many hours, and then I'm just going to ruin the whole thing. I'm going to rip everything down. Nothing's going to stay where it is. I'm going to undo it. It's going to look as if we were never here. That would not be very comforting to those who are helping out, sitting there, trying to get ready to work. It would be very discouraging. That would honestly make them leave and not want to help out if I said I was going to do that. Since all that work would just go to waste. There would be no point if all the work would immediately get ruined and that they know that before they even start. Stephen Chu would be less inclined to build this electric-powered windmill. He wouldn't want to do that if I'm just going to destroy it right away. But in this, war, in this verse, we have the quite the opposite. In this verse, that is not the case at all. Indeed, we read that the work will not be in in vain. 100%, no questions about it. It is a guarantee. And why? Well, because of the context. We go back to Paul's argument and reasoning. We go back to what he's been saying in chapter 15, because of Christ and what he has done, his gospel and the resurrection. We also read that if that were not true, if Christ had not been raised well, then there wouldn't be that comfort and confidence and certainty. Going back to earlier in the chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 says, and if Christ has not been raised, Paul speaking hypothetically, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If that were the case, but that's not the case. The opposite is true. Christ was raised and therefore Paul's preaching and the Corinthians preaching and our preaching is not in vain. Christ was raised and therefore Paul's faith and the Corinthians faith and our faith is not in vain. It's not a waste of time. Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul says something similar. The book of Philippians, which we read this morning. Philippians chapter 2, specifically in verse 16. Paul says, so that I may be proud Right, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We continue on in the Lord and working for him and serve him. We will be rewarded. There will be of great value. It will be of great comfort knowing that we are pleasing our heavenly father, that he is doing this for greater and wonderful purposes. It will be satisfying because it is not in vain, right? Christ has redeemed us and saved us, and the resurrection was the stamp of approval, and so we can take comfort in that. And, as we, and even as we die, we can take comfort that we will be raised and that we will be in God's presence forevermore. That the work that you carry out now, if it be in the Lord, will be fruitful. You can take comfort and joy in that. Right, that we get to please him, that it will bring, bring us in return great joy and comfort as we work and are in line with the Heavenly Father and his will. Knowing is more joyful and satisfying than when we as children are in step with him and his spirit. That is when we are most joyful and satisfied. There is a point to everything that we are doing. It is not pointless. Right, what we are doing 
is because of the gospel. What we are doing is because of his death and resurrection, right? The one who lives and reigns forevermore, we will be raised and we will praise him forevermore. And so let that be the motivator as you live your life now, knowing that the labor is not in vain. Press on, press ahead, keep going. It'll be worth it. For those who are not believers in this room this morning, for those who are not saved, who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, you are not and will not be laboring in the Lord. Your desires and your heart is not geared towards him. Instead, they are geared towards sin. They are focused on you and you alone. They are focused on the world and the false pleasures that it offers. And so my prayer for you today, if this is true of you, that one day this verse would apply to you, that you indeed, even this morning, would see your need for a savior. Right? That you'd see that you cannot save yourself, that you are destined for hell if you do not repent and believe because you are a sinner and you have sinned. Right? We are all sinners. We have all sinned. And we know that Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. But Christ came. And Christ lived the perfect life, which you couldn't, which I couldn't, which none of us could. There is a way to be saved. There is indeed good news for the unbeliever. If you repent and put your faith in him, you will be saved. Right? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And after that, you will indeed be able to labor for him, and your labor will not be in vain. Right? This is your biggest need for the unbeliever that you need to be saved. Today is the day of salvation. And for those who are saved, right, go out and work and serve him, work in the Lord, always abounding in the work of the Lord because of Christ, because of his gospel, because of his resurrection. He is our sure and steady anchor. We can be steadfast and immovable because he is steadfast and immovable. Take joy and comfort in that and press ahead and let that be what propels you. That the Lord in his great wisdom has orchestrated and allowed all of this to take place and it is not in vain. And so I pray this morning that we do just that. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that there was much conviction this morning. I know that there was in my heart as I prepared this. Lord, we are sinful. We are fallen human beings. Lord, we need your help and your guidance. I pray that you would give us that as we go out here today, that we would not seek man's approval. We would not seek the earthly temporal satisfaction that disappoints and never satisfies. Lord, I pray that in all that we do, we would always be abounding in the work of you. But that is what lasts. That is what truly matters I pray that we would not only know that and understand that, that we would indeed live that out, but we need your help and your spirit. So please do that for your glory and your glory alone. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.